Hello and welcome. Uh, this is Dr. Tully for History 256. Hope everybody had a good spring break. Um, I said I might have recorded a podcast over spring ba- break. I decided not to. I think I can cover it all within the next couple of classes. So, um, so we have this week, next week, and then after that is going to be, uh, I think we have one more class in finals. So it's definitely going to be condensing some stuff, but... Uh, I think I'll be able to do this just fine, so I'll give you a second to go into Moodle and get the PowerPoint. Today is on the New Frontier in the Great Society, 1960 to 1968. So last class, we talked about Eisenhower, talked about the 50s, uh, how they're viewed very you know, nostalgically by a lot of baby, baby boomers. Uh, now we're getting into the 60s. We're getting into the 60s, which is a very... It's a turbulent time, uh, very, a lot of social upheaval, a lot of things like that. So let's just talk about it. So the first thing we're going to talk about is the election of 1960. Over one slide. Uh, these are the two major candidates. Uh, for the Democrats, you have John F. Kennedy. And for the Republicans, you have Richard Nixon. Uh, this is during their famous televised debate in 1960. Now, Nixon we talked about for a little bit before. He had been Eisenhower's vice president. Uh, remember, he was picked to be on Eisenhower's uh, ticket because he was viewed as the young conservative, and while well, as uh, Eisenhower was a bit more of a moderate, uh, he had been VP for a while. You remember, he was Mister Anti-Communism. Uh, Nixon had no major accomplishments uh, on the national level. Remember, he he had been known as a big communist fighter, but as vice president, he didn't do all that much. Now, to be fair to vice presidents, no vice president does all that much. I mean, pretty much your main thing you do as vice president is stay alive and occasionally break votes in the Senate, but that's about it. Uh, when Eisenhower was asked about Nixon's accomplishments, uh, Eisenhower responded with this burn, uh, give me a week and I might think of one. Like, ouch, damn, that hurt. <laughs> give me a week and I might think of one. Uh, still, Nixon is young-ish. He's young-ish. This is one of our elections where both major candidates are actually fairly young, uh, younger than most presidential candidates are. Uh, it's interesting because this election cycle in 2020, we're going to be having the two oldest candidates ever to run for president uh, with Trump and Biden. However, Nixon and Kennedy were both quite young at this time. Uh, Nixon is youngish. He's 47 at this time period. Uh, he's an anti-communist, longtime scrapper. You know, he's kind of fought for everything he's ever gotten. Always had a bit of inferiority, inferiority complex, a chip on his shoulder. Uh, he's, he grew up Quaker, semi-poor, not as poor as some of our other presidents like uh, Truman, but he comes from fairly humble beginnings. So he gets it for the Republicans. Uh, Kennedy is the guy on the left. He's 43 years old. He's going to become our youngest elected president, not our youngest president. Our youngest president was Teddy Roosevelt, who uh, became president after William McKinley died. Uh, he's 43 years old, and he's accomplished somehow even less than Nixon, even though he's been in the House and Senate. Uh, Kennedy had been in the House and the Senate as a congressman for Massachusetts. He doesn't really do too much as either. He's, he's a junior Senator and a junior congressman. Doesn't really have that much uh, legislation passed or anything. Uh, he is handsome. He is a, a, a war hero, too. Uh, both these guys are seen as the first two presidential candidates from the World War II generation, the so-called greatest generation. Uh, they're both war vets. Uh, they both served in the Navy, actually, in World War II. 
Uh, Kennedy is Harvard educated. He's rich. He comes from a fairly wealthy family. Uh, his dad, Joe Kennedy, was the U.S. ambassador to Britain for quite a while. He also led some of the New Deal agencies for, um, I believe he was the first director of the SEC. Something to do with stock markets for, for Franklin Roosevelt. But he later becomes ambassador to um, Great Britain, to England. Uh, Kennedy is also Catholic. This is actually kind of a big deal in the time period. Uh, the U.S. had never had a Catholic president before, and Kennedy has asked a lot of questions during the campaign about his Catholic faith. Mainly, would his Catholicism uh, come before him being American? Like, he's even asked, like, you know, if the Pope asked you to nuke somebody, would you nuke them? And he's like, that's a very silly question, because, you know, I don't think the Pope would ever ask me to do that, but that's Kennedy for you. Uh, Kennedy also has an attractive wife. If you go over one more, you will see Kennedy and his wife, Jackie. Um, they're, they're both young. She's attractive. He's very attractive. Uh, they have children. Uh, the, the possibilities of having small children in the White House, that's always appealing for voters. It's been a while since we had, like, you know, young children in the White House. Uh, a quote about uh, FDR, uh, sorry, not FDR, about Kennedy in this time period, uh, which what a pundit says about him is, quote, he combines the best qualities of FDR and Elvis. So if you, if you threw FDR and Elvis in a blender, you would get Kennedy. Now, if you go back one slide, I want you to go back to that picture of the televised debate. Uh, Nixon and Kennedy have the first televised debate. This is the first time that the president has been on television for a debate. Uh, they've had debates for a long time. They've been done by, like, radio before this or, like, in newspaper columns before this where basically they, they record, like, the um, each president's candidate's response. This is the first time that you're actually having a straight-up debate. And it's really interesting because during the debate, uh, Nixon was having some sort of sinus drip. He, he was sick, and so he, he wiped his nose a lot. He, he was sweaty. He looked very uncomfortable, whereas Nixon, uh, Kennedy looked very cool very handsome, very comfortable in front of the, the television lights. I, I think it's interesting that uh, basically after the debate was over, those who listened to the debate on the radio said that Nixon won, whereas those who watched on television said Kennedy won. This is become, going to become more important as the 20th century uh, goes on, basically this idea of image, the idea that you know, a president needs to look a certain way. Uh, when we get into Reagan one of the things they talk about Reagan is that he looked presidential. This idea that the president should look a certain way. Now, the election itself is very close. It's one of our closest elections uh, when it comes to popular vote. Uh, Kennedy wins by about 100,000 votes cast. Out, uh, sorry. He wins by 100,000 votes out of 68 million votes cast. So that is a very, very thin sliver of victory of the popular vote. Uh, remember, popular vote doesn't mean anything in the United States. Uh, it's nice to know, but it's Electoral College. Now, Kennedy is able to get the South. Now, this is going to become important as we go on into civil rights. Uh, Kennedy is trying to appeal to black voters. This is something that Franklin Roosevelt had starting to do uh, as a Democrat. Uh, now, Kennedy is doing this as well. Now, Black voters, those who could vote before this time period, the black people who could vote, generally voted Republican. But basically, FDR, now Kennedy, are saying, hey, what has the Republican Party done for you? Yes, we know Lincoln liberated the slaves, but that's been like 100 years now. 
what can we do for you now? And Kennedy is not very popular in the South. He's viewed as too liberal on racial issues, you know, the civil rights issues. He's also a Massachusetts liberal. He's viewed as too liberal. Uh, most Democrats in the South tend to be a bit more conservative or centrist. Now, Kennedy does get the South, but he gets it begrudgingly. Uh, the South is not too happy about him. Uh, Kennedy is never very popular in the South, even though he is a Democratic voter. Uh, he's also able to get the, set, the Southern vote, thanks in part to his vice president, uh, Lyndon Johnson. His running mate is Lyndon Baines Johnson. Know the name. He's about to come on president in about 15 minutes. Uh, Lyndon Johnson is a Texan, uh, and Johnson is known for having a pretty good machine down in Texas. And so he's able to get Texas, which helps the rest of the South go in line. Also, there are some murmurings about maybe the Chicago mob got uh, Kennedy votes in Illinois. Um, Kennedy was able to win Illinois pretty much by getting almost all Chicago, not almost all Chicago, but a larger percentage of Chicago than they want. So what you have here is a guy who becomes president without much of a mandate. You know, he he's upsetting a lot of his standard everyday electorate, you know, particularly Southern voters, Southern Democrats are the bulk of the Democratic Party in this time period, yet they feel over... They feel neglected. They feel overlooked. So Kennedy is able to win thanks because of LBJ, the black vote, and possibly Chicago mob people. If you go over two more slides to President Kennedy, you will see him right there. As I said earlier, Kennedy represents a new generation. Uh, these are the young men who fought in World War II. There's a lot of optimism and hope that maybe he can charm the Russians. Maybe he could, you know, he's young, he's good-looking, he's very charming. This is something the Russians haven't really seen before. You know, if you compare Khrushchev to Kennedy, it's really not much of a comparison. Kennedy is much better-looking, uh, he seems to be a much better speaker, much more charming. The problem with Kennedy is that it's a bit of a facade. Uh, Kennedy has got some issues, some major issues that most voters don't know about at the time period. Probably the most glaring is that Kennedy was incredibly sick. Uh, even though he looks like this young, very healthy individual, he is sick. Uh, he's got Addison's disease. Addison's disease is an autoimmune disease. Um, it causes fatigue. It causes a lot of different things. It's, it's, it doesn't really go away. It's a chronic disease you'll have for the rest of your life. It's something he was born with. Um, it, it manifests in fatigue. Also can help um, deal with depression. It can, it can cause depression just because of the tiredness. He's also got a history of venereal diseases. Uh, we talked about venereal diseases for World War I. Uh, that's just the way they said STDs back then. Uh, Kennedy had some STDs that he caught because he was a bit of a philanderer, as we're going to get into in a second. Uh, he also, probably the thing that's kind of known at the time period, they just know how bad it was, is his back pain. Uh, Kennedy had crippling back pain. Uh, part of it was a birth defect. He had a birth defect in his back. The other part of it was during World War II, his uh, PT boat was shot up by the Japanese. He was he was uh, guiding a, a boat in, in, uh, in the Pacific. Uh, he got shot several times. Uh, he had crippling back pain. Uh, he was never able to like sit in a proper chair. If you notice, um, like whenever he went to Congress, he would sit in a rocking chair. Also, if you ever see pictures of him and his kids, he's never picking up his children. Uh, his back uh, 
couldn't let him pick up his children. He'd always hold them on the ground. So because of his sickness and all this pain, he took a lot of drugs. Like, he was heavily medicated. Uh, he took a lot of pain drugs, mainly for the back pain. And, you know, he took a lot of pain drugs, a lot of anxiety drugs, uh, just to deal with Addison's disease, also anxiety, depression, things like that. Um, because he was taking so much drugs, it also interfered with his sleeping. And so he would take drugs to help him sleep, sleeping pills. Now, none of this in of itself is bad. I mean, you know, if you have pain medicine, take it. You know, if you need antidepressants, take it. If you have, if you need medicine to help you sleep. I mean, hey, I mean, we're all having problems sleeping nowadays. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, I'm not shaming anybody for taking medicine. However, in the sign period, people, it, it was just that it was hidden from the public. Another thing hidden from the public, if you go over one more, is affairs. Kennedy had all sorts of affairs as president and before he was president. Uh, Kennedy was, uh, how do I say this politely? Kennedy slipped around. Kennedy was never very faithful to his wife. Uh, the most famous person he cheated with was Marilyn Monroe. Uh, he definitely cheated with Marilyn Monroe. Um, she's not the only person he, she, he cheated with. Like, even when he was in the White House, he'd have the Secret Service, like, bringing in uh, women for him. Uh, his wife probably knew about it. Uh, this is not quite the um, Franklin Roosevelt cheating situation where, it, where basically his wife, Eleanor, said, like, you know, cheat, but I don't want to see it. Uh, Kennedy was not really hiding it. And Jackie's response was maybe, like, I can't stop him. I go back over one more, back to President Kennedy. There he is with his brother, Robert. Uh, like I said earlier, because of his narrow victory, Kennedy has no mandate. Uh, Congress doesn't really care for him. And the, the Southern Democrats, who control Congress in this time period, basically block anything he tries to do. Uh, his only success is the space program. Uh, remember last class we talked about Sputnik freaking everybody out? Uh, he gets Congress to commit $40 billion to put a man on the moon within 10 years. Uh, it's mainly because Russia had just done a manned space flight, and that really freaked the crippity crap out of America. Uh, even though Kennedy is never able to see it, because he dies, if you don't know Kennedy dies, um, sorry, he does, uh, he is able to get a man on the moon within eight years of his speech. So, yeah, we got a man on the moon. That's pretty cool. And we haven't been back since. Well, we, we, we there are a few missions to the moon in the late 60s, early 70s, but I think since... Like 72, 73, we haven't gone back. There, there's talk of going to the moon now, but I think with the coronavirus, our money's probably going to other stuff. Now, Kennedy does indeed decide to make civil rights a major issue. He doesn't want to wait like FDR did. And his brother is very much in favor of civil rights. I should mention his brother, sitting on his left, that is Robert Kennedy. Robert Kennedy is the Attorney General. Now, I bet you're wondering, wait a minute, president and his brother is attorney general? That sounds like severe nepotism. That sounds like severe conflict of interest. And you would be absolutely right. After Kennedy's out of office, they pass all sorts of laws to make sure this doesn't happen again. Pretty much Robert Kennedy was vice president. Um, Lyndon Johnson was kept out of the loop, out of most of uh, Kennedy's stuff. Pretty much Robert Kennedy served as co-president or sub-president to, uh, to his brother John. And, and actually, Robert Kennedy is much more gung-ho about civil rights than uh, John, uh, John Kennedy is. Uh, Mr. Attorney General is like, yeah, let's do some civil rights. 
let's do it. He wants to use the power of the State Department to make sure civil rights happen. The problem with Kennedy, even though he wants to do it, he gets very wishy-washy. Once he becomes president, he is not as, uh, not as committed to it as people might have hoped. He says there's other things we need to deal with. There are doubts that uh, he's ever going to do anything. In fact, Dr. King has a lot of doubts about, you know, is Kennedy really an ally or is he just like another white liberal who says, hey, we're going to help you, and then they don't do their own thing. Now, Kennedy might have done stuff with civil rights, except there were some big crises going on in the civil uh, in the Cold War, not the Civil War. Uh, some of this is not Kennedy's fault. Uh, for instance, in 1959, if you go over to more to go crisis, you see Cuba. Uh, Fidel Castro, uh, seen there with a cigar. Fidel Castro takes over Cuba. He deposes Batista. Uh, Batista was the president slash dictator of Cuba. The Cuban people did not like him very much, but he was anti-communist, and the U.S. had a lot of business deals with him. Uh, Castro comes in. He and Che Guevara pretty much kick out Batista, set up their own communist government. This is seen as scary for the U.S. mainly because of how close it is to the U.S. mainland. It's about 90 miles from uh, Cuba to Florida, to like the Florida Keys and Miami. It's about 90 miles. It's very close, actually. Quite close. Uh, 90 miles is about as far as Thibodeau is from, let's say, Lafayette. That sounds about right. Yeah, I'd say Thibodeau to Lafayette's about 90 miles. That's, that sounds, yep. Yeah, so it's very close, very close, scary close. Now, like I said, this is not Kennedy's fault. He's not president when this happens. And so whenever he becomes president, he finds out that the CIA is planning uh, to overthrow Castro thanks to some Cuban nationals. Basically, there are a lot of Cubans who flee from Cuba. They go to places like Miami. Actually, some go to New Orleans. Uh, the CIA is training these Cuban nationals to become a little army to overthrow Castro. If you go over one more slide, you will see this becomes later known as the Bay of Pigs, and it is a total disaster for uh, everybody involved. Basically, the CIA is, is asking for the U.S. military, specifically the U.S. Navy, to provide support. Just have Navy ships provide, you know, naval bombardment to help out the soldiers. Uh, Kennedy decides not to. He's like, this could be seen as an act of war. It's a little too aggressive. Uh, the, as you can see, the Bay of Pig soldiers, these are Cuban nationals, they, go, they get to Cuba. Uh, Castro has tons of spies within the Bay of Pig soldiers for the, for the nationalists. Um, it's, it's a massacre. Pretty much everybody gets, they, they land at the Bay of Pigs, which is a literal bay. There's no pigs there, but it's called the Bay of Pigs in Cuba. I forget what it is in Spanish. They go there, and it's a disaster. You know, Castro captures them all. This is very bad PR for the U.S., because it's like, you know, the U.S. is this great, powerful country, and they're fighting the Cold War to say that communism is bad, and yet they can't overthrow communism by some podunk little backwater Islands so close to them. Now, if this wasn't bad enough, a couple weeks after this, if you go over one more slide, Khrushchev meets with uh, JFK for the first time. They meet at the Vienna summit, and Khrushchev is like, I can badger the mess out of this dude. He's a kid. You know, he's a little baby. I can just tear him a new one. Khrushchev mocks the Bay of Pigs. He starts using a lot more aggressive language about... Um, 
about Berlin. He's like, I'm going to take over all of Berlin now. And for Khrushchev's, you know, for Khrushchev's, uh, to his credit, I mean, if the U.S. couldn't overthrow Cuba right next to their country, what makes anybody think the U.S. is better equipped to deal with Berlin, you know, which is in Germany, we're, we're dealing with the Soviets directly? So Khrushchev is like, we're going to take over Berlin. Kennedy says, if you do that, we're not going to let you do that. I'm not going to be bullied. Uh, he moves some military around Berlin. And the Soviets respond to all this by erecting a 27-mile-long wall straight down the middle of, the, of Berlin, straight down the city, uh, becoming East and West Berlin. This becomes known as the Berlin Wall. It pretty much becomes the symbol of the Cold War. It's a physical barrier that represents the split between communism and capitalism, whatever you want to call it. It shows the resolve of the Soviets against the U.S. It just shows that things are not going to be easily done. This wall lasts for quite a while. It goes until 1989 when it's finally broken down. But the Berlin Wall, I mean, it has checkpoints. You know, if you try to cross over it, you could get killed. There's barbed wire and stuff. There's guards with guns. This becomes the symbol of the Cold War. Now, if that isn't bad enough, if that isn't bad enough, go for one more slide. The Soviets decide to move nuclear missiles to Cuba. Cuba, as you can see from this map, is very close to the U.S. mainland. Very close to the U.S. mainland. Uh, from Havana to Miami is 234 miles. You're just going, like, tip to tip, like, tip of Cuba to, like, the tip of Miami. It's about 90 miles. It's very close. Some of those other uh, numbers are a bit ambitious. There's no way the, the Cuban missiles could have hit Seattle or Los Angeles. Uh, the eastern seaboard, though, was definitely in play. It was definitely in play. Also, I, I should mention, this was done mainly not for tactical purposes, but just for appearance sake. Uh, the Soviets had much better ways to bomb the U.S., which were much more accurate than these missiles. Uh, they had bombers that would be much much better range, much, pretty much better by every possible metric. But still, it the perception is bad, and this begins pretty much the worst 13 days in U.S. history when it comes to nuclear war. It really looks like nuclear war is imminent. The optics look terrible here. You know, for 13 days, the U.S. is thinking, oh my gosh, are we about to have real nuclear war? Uh, my dad was a kid in this time period. He was about 12, 13 years old. Uh, he was living in Shreveport, which is right next to Barksdale Air Force Base, which is a very major Air Force Base for bombers. And he was like, yeah, I thought I was going to die. You know, for, for two weeks, we thought we were legit going to die. And kind of that existential crisis in your head, that's very heavy. JFK isn't really considering to invade Cuba or, like, first strike against the USSR, but it's looking very hopeless. They have to figure out a way to deal with this situation. Ultimately, what they decide upon, this is kind of ironic, uh, considering what we're in now, is a quarantine. They said, theoretically, okay, we can't stop the U.S., uh, we can't stop Russian ships from landing on Cuba by force, but we could say, hey, if you're in the ocean, it's a quarantine. You can't go there. Basically, they're trying to figure out a way that they can make the Russians go away by saving face. That's not the real thing that changes things. What does change things is secret talks. 
the Russians don't want to die either. Uh, the Russians don't have as many nuclear weapons as the U.S. does. And so if the Russians were to attack, they are pretty much assured that they would die. Uh, mutually assured destruction is a term you might hear about with the Cold War. The idea that nobody's going to start the Cold War because if you do start the Cold War, you're going to die. And so the Soviets asked for a pledge that the U.S. would never try to take over Cuba. The U.S. would never try to make it anti-communist. They would never try to get rid of Castro. The U.S. agrees. Uh, to the U.S.'s credit, we have not tried to make Cuba anti-communist. Uh, Cuba is still communist. Castro died. Uh, it's amazing how long Castro lived, but Castro died fairly recently. But his brother is still in charge. Uh, they also do another secret pledge, which is to remove nuclear missiles from Turkey. Uh, the U.S. had some nuclear missiles in Turkey, which were aimed towards Russia. They were actually a bit outdated, and the U.S. was talking about getting rid of them anyway because they didn't have as much strategic purpose. However, the U.S. is like, okay, yeah, we'll do it. We'll get rid of these nuclear missiles in Turkey as long as you don't do get rid of your nuclear missiles in Cuba. They also decide that they should have a more direct line of communication. This is where you have the famous red telephone on the White House desk, which is a direct line from the White House to the Kremlin. Uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis does indeed end. Like I said, this is the closest we ever get to straight-out nuclear war in the, in the world. Life seems to go back to normal. Um, life does go back to normal. No matter how weird things get, life does indeed go back to normal. And JFK makes it look like the Russians blinked first, which is eh, good on him. The problem is, right as this is starting to cool down, Vietnam heats up. Uh, this is President Diem. D-I-E-M. President Diem. Like dime, just switching letters around. Diem had never... He is the president of South Vietnam. He had never been all that great of an ally to the U.S. Um, never been that great of an ally. He'd taken U.S. stuff. You know, he'd prevented South Vietnam from becoming communist. He's not the greatest leader of Vietnam. He's not the nicest guy. Um, he's also Catholic. There's nothing wrong with being Catholic, but he's Catholic in a country where the majority of the population is not Catholic. The majority of the population of Vietnam is Buddhist. Now, the problem with Diem is he's starting to crack down against Buddhists because he says they're harboring communists. He says they're harboring the Viet Cong. Uh, South Vietnamese soldiers, Diem's guys, are going into Buddhist temples and... They're, you know, they're claiming, oh, they're, they're housing Viet Cong members. To be fair, sometimes they are. But they're also doing stuff like taking the relics, taking the gold that might be on an altar. Uh, kind of similar to like a, you know, like a Catholic temple. Catholic temple, that's not the right word. What's the look? Catholic church, there we go. You know, if you go to a Catholic church, you might go to the altar. You have fancy stuff on the altar. You know, there might be some gold, maybe some fancy candlesticks. Uh, a lot of religious elements too, of course, but some things of value. Uh, the soldiers are staking the things of value. They're not acting very respectful towards religion. These Buddhist monks are not really digging this. They decide to protest. Some of them protest very strongly, if you go over one more, by doing self-mobilization. Basically, a Buddhist monk would be like, hey, uh, my name is Vietnamese version of John Smith. I'm a monk here. I'm protesting what Diem's doing. Uh, they pour gasoline on themselves, light a match, and then they die. 
this does not look good. The optics are bad for Diem, and this is giving Ho Chi Minh and the Viet Cong, North Vietnam, a lot of ammunition. Now, JFK sends more supplies to South Vietnam and Diem, even though Diem is clearly a dictator, and JFK doesn't really like Diem. He's like, you know what, maybe we should get rid of Diem. Maybe we should be, you know, he, would, would, if, if he were to leave, would somebody better come in his place? We hope so. Uh, now we get into conspiracy theories a little bit. Uh, okay. I'm not saying that JFK ordered the assassination of Jim. I would never say that. Likewise, I don't think the CIA carried out the... Um, assassination of Diem. That's a very long-lasting rumor that's happened for quite a while. What I can say is that the CIA told the people in um, Vietnam, they told some of Diem's generals, that if they were to raise a coup against Diem, the United States would not be upset. Uh, that is probably the best way I could say that. So do you understand... I wish I was in class right now so I could kind of break it down a little bit further. So, basically, JFK let it be known through the CIA that if anything were to happen to Diem, the United States wouldn't be too upset. On November 1st, 1963, that's what happens. Uh, Diem and his brother are killed in a military coup. Uh, basically, some of Diem's generals rise up against him, and they kill him. The problem is, this creates a power vacuum. And without Diem in place, there's no real one leader. And the generals start infighting almost immediately. And JFK really doesn't want to send troops. But he's afraid of domino theory. He's like, this has actually made South Vietnam weaker. And so even though Diem was in power, and he wasn't a nice guy, he kept things straight. Now, Diem's out of power, nobody's really stepped up. We don't really know what JFK's uh, strategy would have been about this, because right around the time Vietnam starts getting nasty, um, if you remember the date that the Diem died was November 1st, 1963. Some of you might be ahead of me, but if you go over one more slide, November 22nd, 1963, JFK goes to Dallas. Uh, he is assassinated in Dallas. He's in an open-air limousine. Uh, that's not a limo, it's an open-air Cadillac. Eh, I guess you can consider a limo. Uh, he's going through Dallas. Uh, he's going through Dallas mainly to, like, shore up support with the Southern Democrats. Remember, the next year will be an election year. Also, Lyndon Johnson is from Texas, so he's like, eh, I'm going to go to J Lyndon Johnson's area. Uh, he is assassinated by one Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, Lee Harvey Oswald is a very interesting fella. We'll talk about, well, right now. Let me go through the slides real quick. Uh, there's a joke about... JFK writing with Suge Knight, whatever, it's funny. I think over one more, that is the, what happens to Lee Harvey Oswald two days after the assassination. Uh, he is killed on live television by Jack Ruby. Jack Ruby was a nightclub owner around Dallas. Uh, all right, I guess I have to get into the conspiracies real quick. Um, okay, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was a former Marine. He was a former Marine sharpshooter, but he got discharged. He actually defected to the Russians. Um, he defected to the Russians. However, the Russians sent him back. He went to Russia for a little while. He, he got sent back. Took some meetings with some people in Mexico. 
Uh, he was on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. It's like a textbook depository. Uh, he had just taken a job there. He had a rifle. There's a couple shots into Kennedy. Kennedy dies, obviously. I believe the governor of Texas got shot as well. I don't believe he died, though. He's also in the, in the car with, with, uh, with Kennedy. Uh, Kennedy dies not almost instantly. He, he lingers for a while, but he got shot in the head. You know, you don't... You generally don't recover from shots to the head. Um, conspiracies come up almost immediately about this, uh, mainly just because it's interesting that, you know, Oswald seemingly acted alone. Likewise, the fact he's killed very conveniently two days afterwards by Jack Ruby, who claims he did it on his own as well, but there's all sorts of murmurings about maybe there's all sorts of crazy conspiracy theories that... I could get into for a while, and maybe some other day I will, but uh, because we're time is a factor, I'll just give you the three main conspiracy theories. Uh, number one conspiracy theory, uh, Castro killed him uh, for payback for the Bay of Pigs. That doesn't seem too likely because recently declassified Cuban documents show that the Cubans were freaking out about this. They were like, oh my God, what if they think, you know, what if America thinks that uh, we did this and they use this as a pretense to invade us? Uh, the second most common conspiracy theory is that um, the Russians did it. Uh, the Russians did it. Uh, likewise, also recently declassified documents to show the Russians were freaking out about this. They're like, oh my God, what if the Americans think we killed them? Oh gosh, they might do bad things to us. Uh, the third one is that the Mafia killed them, uh, seemingly because, oh, JFK got elected president because of the Mafia in Chicago, and then supposedly he started sleeping with one of the Mafia guys girlfriends. Uh, this is probably unlikely just because, well, the problem with any conspiracy theory is that if it's as big as all the conspiracy theorists say, you would have to have a massive amount of people working on it, and people talk. Uh, people straight up talk. That's all that happens. Uh, in my estimation, I find most conspiracy theories tend to be coping mechanisms, mainly just because it's easier to think that somebody's in charge, even if the person in charge is terrible, rather than accepting that things are just crazy and, uh, you know, bad things happen sometimes. Uh, also, within the past two years or so, they had some recently declassified documents, which I think might explain why some of this stuff is kind of squirrely with the CIA. Um, now, this is, this is not Professor Tully. This is just Stuart Tully guy. This is not factual. This is just my belief. So take that with a grain of salt. Uh, some of the recently declassified documents show that Oswald was known to the CIA. He wasn't working with the CIA, but he had like he was on their radar. I think um, some agents actually took a meeting with him in Mexico City uh, about a year or so before, probably because of the Russia stuff. Probably because you remember he defected to Russia, then he came back. So I think the fact that the CIA knew of Oswald and this happened, I think they're trying to cover themselves uh, from any, you know, edicts from on high, defunding them or getting rid of them because they, they failed, quote-unquote. For me, that's the most logical explanation about why some documents are still hidden. It's because some of these CIA agents might still be alive. I believe they're all going to be declassified in a couple years. I think it's in a few years everything's going to be declassified. Uh, finally, if you still want to go with conspiracy theory, I'll give you one more. Uh, Nixon was actually in Dallas the same day that Kennedy was there, so go nuts with that one. 
Uh, we have a new president now, Lyndon Johnson. Oh, there's another silly picture, Photoshop, uh, whatever. Uh, the new president is Lyndon Johnson. We'll talk about him in just a second. I do need to go back to civil rights, though. So we're going thematically. We're going back in time. Uh, the civil rights movement is gaining steam. Uh, if we go back to, like, 1960 or so, uh, Kennedy becomes the face of the movement. Not Kennedy. <laughs> Dr. King. There we go. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., becomes the face of a movement. He becomes the face of moderation. By no means is he the only person involved. Uh, still, he does get a very mean letter from the head of the FBI in this time period, J. Edgar Hoover, pretty much telling him, kill yourself, or else we're going to reveal all your dirty secrets. Um, the dirty secrets for King were that he was having affairs. Uh, Dr. King had affairs on his wife. That was something that was kind of overlooked for the sake of the movement at the time period. Um, I believe his wife knew about it. And Anyway. Uh, what I do want you to know about, though, is a new element of the movement that happens in Greensboro, uh, North Carolina, in 1960. This is the start of the sit-ins. If you go over one slide, you will see uh, the first sit-in. Uh, some black students from a local school in Greensboro decide that they're going to go sit at a local lunch counter. At this time period, a lot of drugstores had lunch counters. They were segregated. Black people could order, they just couldn't sit. And basically, these four students decide, you know what, we're going to go to this department store, this drugstore, we're going to sit down, we're going to ask for lunch, and whenever they don't feed us, we're just going to sit. We're not going to resist, we're not going to make a scene, we're not going to fuss, we're not going to cuss, we're not going to punch anybody. We're, gonna, we're just going to sit chill until they decide to serve us. They stay for a while, there's a little bit of a crowd. Uh, the next day, there's a few dozen. A few dozen students do this. A couple days after that, you have several hundred students, black, white, from all different schools. Uh, this works. Uh, the lunch counters are desegregated. This kind of begins the beginning of top I'm sorry, bottom-up civil rights. Much more grassroots. If you go over one more slide, this is a sit-in that happens across the... Uh, like I said, they have sit-ins that happen across the country. Thousands of students get involved. This one's in Jackson, Mississippi. As you can see, uh, some of the people who are not in favor of the sit-in are pouring sugar and coffee on their heads. Still successful. Uh, this kind of passive resistance, grassroots thing works out. And so they go over one more. Uh, go over one more slide. They decide, you know what? We, a couple of these students decide, if we did this well without any real planning, this organically happened, how much more can we do if things were organic? Um, they form what's called SNCC, the Student Nonviolence Coordinating Committee. Uh, they're big on nonviolence. They're, they're students, they're young, they're trying to coordinate more civil rights protests, very grassroots. One of the earliest ones is what's known as a kneel-in. Uh, those are for churches. Uh, churches were segregated in this time period. You know, churches might uh, hire a black person to become their janitor, but they were not allowed to pray there. So they start doing kneel-ins. Uh, uh, Wade-ins is another one to desegregate uh, pools, uh, city public pools. A lot of southern cities have pools in this time period. They're segregated. Basically, black students come in. They decide we're going to go in the water. Uh, a lot of southern cities respond by just filling in their pools straight up. Uh, they pour concrete into the pools, get rid of the swimming pools. 
Uh, Ella Baker's probably the early big name. She's an older generation. The younger names I want you to know are Stokely Carmichael and uh, Bob Moses. I'll talk about Bob Moses in a second. Uh, Stokely Carmichael later becomes the face of the Black Power Movement. We'll talk about him um, fairly soon, actually. Uh, in 1961, you have what's called the Freedom Rides. Uh, the Freedom Rides want to test if the internet, interstate, internet, no, the interstate is desegregated. This is a very symbolic precision field action. You know, they pick a certain number of students, half are male, half are female, half are black, half are white. Uh, they all get on one big Greyhound bus. It's, you know, black boys sitting with black sorry, black boy, white boy, white girl, black girl. You know, they want to make sure there's no hanky-panky, no interracial relationships. Uh, The goal is they want to drive, they want to ride on their bus from Washington, D.C. to New Orleans, stopping along the way to make sure all the rest stops and restaurants they go to are desegregated. It's very idealistic. You know, they're told to, like, sing hymns and stuff while while they're on the bus, steeped in respectability. The problem with driving from D.C. to New Orleans in this time period is you have to go through the entire Deep South. At first, it's not too major. They go through Virginia, not too much. The problem is when they make it to Alabama. Uh, When they get to the state line of Alabama, state troopers tell them, hey, you need to leave. Uh, They keep going. Right when they make it to the outskirts of Birmingham, they get stopped. Uh, some protesters come in. If you go over one more slide, you will see somebody throws a firebomb into the bus. Um, they, the students escape, to which they get beaten afterwards. Uh, John Lewis, who's now a congressman from Georgia, he is there. He's a very young man in this time period. Literally gets a skull fracture. Um, the riders are actually thrown into jail. Whenever the police come, they're thrown into jail. They never actually make it to New Orleans. Now, when JFK is saying this, he is actually a little annoyed. Uh, he does admire the bravery of these protesters. But he's frustrated that the U.S. is, they're making the U.S. look bad in front of the Russians. Now, the students might say, hey, JFK, this is all your fault. Uh, during his inaugural address, JFK makes a very famous quote of, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And he says, hey, this is your fault. Um, you know, you're the reason we're doing this. You're the one who emboldened us. Just going to drink some water real quick. My throat's getting sore. Not sore. You know, chapped. I'm talking quite a bit. I don't have the coronavirus. Don't worry, kids. Uh, and he pretty much tells them, hey, guys, can we cool it? To which uh, some of the leaders respond, if, if civil rights got any cooler, we'd be in the deep freeze. Uh, In all this, you have another test case that happens. Uh, James Meredith. James Meredith is a black veteran, so he gets a GI Bill. He wants to go to school in his home state, at his home state's flagship school of Ole Miss. Uh, He's a veteran. He's a good test case. This is in the fall of 1962. James Meredith wants to go to Ole Miss. Now, some of y'all who like sports might know this, but does anybody know Old Miss's mascot? That's right, the Rebel, the Confederate Rebel. You know, the stars and bars, the Confederate flag, are all over, are all over Old Miss. Uh, I'm not saying other schools in the South are not segregated. They are. I mean, Al- University of Alabama is, LSU is segregated in this time period. 
But Ole Miss is like, it's Ole Miss. It's the super Confederate one. Now Meredith wants to go. Uh, the school refuses to admit him. The school refuses to admit him. Uh, JFK doesn't really want to do anything about it. However, Robert Kennedy does. Robert Kennedy says, hey, you're interfering with federal law. I, I am the attorney general. I will send in the U.S. Marshals. I'm going to send in the federal marshals. When he sends in the federal marshals, they are um, assaulted. They're assaulted. JFK responds by sending in the National Guard. When the National Guard shows up, there are riots. It kills about two and injures dozens. Meredith does eventually go to school for a little while. Um, still, King actually sees this as a chance to raise a profile of uh, Birmingham. Uh, Birmingham is a major city in, in Alabama. It's the largest city in Alabama. It's very, very segregated. Uh, George Wallace, if you see right there, if you go over one more, there's George Wallace. He is the governor of Alabama. Uh, after Ole Miss stuff happened, he goes to the steps of the University of Alabama and says, we're never going to desegregate the University of Alabama. His slogan is segregation now, segregation forever. He'll later run for president on what's known as the Segregation Party. Um, if you haven't caught a motif here, he loves the segregation. He's governor of Alabama. He says we're going to resist segregation. Likewise, if you go over one more, Bull Connor, uh, Eugene Connor, his nickname is Bull. He is the head of the police in Birmingham. He does not care about what he does, what he looks like. He just wants to get of the desegregationist. Now, you can see right here is the, what Connor kind of overlooks, cameras. King realizes that these resulting protests could be televised. And if they're televised, it's a way to make a case to the country without saying a word. This is steeped in respectability. If you go one more slide. He tells the protesters, you know, wear your Sunday best. Be neat and clean. Um, you know, if the police do anything to you, don't resist. Because if a hundred of us don't resist and one of us does throw a punch, the news media is only going to show that one person throwing the punch, and it's going to hurt the movement as entirety. That's what happens in Birmingham. Uh, basically, there's a lot of different protests in Birmingham. They're televised. Make the segregationist looks terrible. JFK responds to this by giving a speech uh, calling for a civil rights bill. Now, as what is often going to be the case with civil rights... You get a step forward and then a couple steps back. Because a few hours after Kennedy gives a speech calling for a civil rights bill, Medgar Evers, who's the head of the a civil rights leader and activist in Jackson, Mississippi, is killed in his driveway. He literally was walking from his car to his house, to his front door. He is shot and killed. And although there is support for the bill, Southern Democrats, a.k.a. JFK's party, are trying to delay the bill every way they can. And in the midst of this, Dr. King decides, you know what? I'm going to break the glass. I'm going to do what I've always said I was going to do. What might happen, what, you know, what we, what A. Philip Randolph, you know, teased, not teased, but threatened to do for Roosevelt. We're going to make it happen. King does the March on Washington. Its true title is the March on, sorry, March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. 
On August 28, 1963, about 250,000 people show up. Uh, King uh, gives some impromptu remarks. Uh, he kind of stumbles, and Mahalia Jackson tells him, Tell about the dream, Martin. Uh, this is a speech that King had done a couple times before. Uh, he, gives, he does it much better on a much better stage in Washington. Does the I Have a Dream speech. Um, totally nails the recovery. This is kind of seen as a high watermark of the civil rights movement, but even this has a backlash. 18 days after the, um, the march on Washington, four little girls are killed in a church in Birmingham from a bomb. A bomb is planted at a black church in Birmingham, and these four little girls who were only there to go to Sunday school are killed. So once again, sobering reminder. Now, a year after this, uh, the next summer is what's called Freedom Summer. This is the summer of 1964. There's some calls to have more actions about civil rights, more grassroots. Um, Bob Moses, who is the head of SNCC in Mississippi, uh, coolest dude on the planet, Bob Moses, calls for an army of volunteers to help get voting rights for the state of Mississippi. He says basically Mississippi has the largest black population in the United States, uh, percentage-wise, but has the lowest percentage of black voters. So it's like, we need an army of people to come to Mississippi to do two things. Register people to vote, and also have schools. Give them education. Because uh, most African Americans in Mississippi don't have access to education. So a ton of volunteers show up. They're mainly white college students from uh, you know Ivy League schools, primarily white, elite kids. Uh, in response, the Klan and Mississippi officials prepare for a onslaught of, quote, sorry, invasion of inwards Jews and communists. Uh, they start stackpiling tear gas and weapons. I believe Gulfport even gets a tank. Um, what ends up happening is some freedom schools. They do register some people to vote. They also have um, a lot of harassment of the freedom summers. Uh, Bob Moses, I should mention him in a while for a little bit. He is originally from Harlem. Uh, he goes to Harvard for his master's. He's a math guy. He's obsessed with math. Uh, still to this day. Still alive. Still alive. Still obsessed with math. Coolest dude on the planet. Uh, you'll never hear me say anything bad about Bob Moses. Uh, mainly because I, I, I had dinner with him once. Uh, <laughs> funny story. Uh, I got invited to a dinner by a professor friend. I went to undergrad in Mississippi. And uh, one of my professors was like, Hey, Stuart, uh, come to lunch. I want you to meet my friend Robert. I was like, I was like yeah, okay, I'll, I'll meet your friend Robert. And so uh, yeah, I, I, go to, I go to lunch, and um, this older gentleman here, and he's like, Hey, um, I'll never forget the first question he ever asked me. He's like, Hey, you prefer decimals or radians? I was like, What the hell kind of question is this? I was like, uh, Decimals, I guess. He's like, Ah, you're a kid. You're a kid. Ah, gee, you know, you, you don't understand the beauty of radians and like how, how it's just more elegant to do. I'm like, Whatever. He's like, When'd you take algebra? I was like, ah, I took algebra in eighth grade. He's like, Ah, I see. See, and then he starts going on about how like he's in Jackson, Mississippi, you know, um, teaching kids algebra in inner city schools. And it was, it was really neat, but I was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm a history guy. Why am I talking to this guy? And then he's talking for like 30 minutes, and I'm, I'm listening very politely to him go on and on and on about algebra and how it's great. And I'm like, why am I here exactly? Because no offense to anybody who's a math major, but that's not my cup of tea. 
And then he mentioned something about Stokely. And I was like, Stokely? Wait, Stokely Carmichael? And then it hit me, this dude is Bob Moses. And I fangirled the hell out. Oh, my gosh. And I guess because I was not, he, he was very polite because I grilled him with questions for like a, two or three hours about like, what was it like doing civil rights? And, and what was so-and-so like? And oh, my gosh. Coolest guy on the planet. I can't say enough nice things about Bob Moses. Cool, cool dude. Uh, however, there is some unfortunate things that happened. Fairly early on in Freedom Summer, uh, three of these civil rights volunteers, three of these summer, uh, three of these Freedom Summerers, go missing, and it's kind of something that is over the head, kind of a malaise over the Freedom Summer for the entirety. By the end of the, sum the summer, their bodies are discovered. Uh, they're discovered right outside of Philadelphia, Mississippi. I believe they were thrown into a pond of sort. It was like a it was like a cattle pond. They were they were thrown into a cattle pond. And so once again, kind of like the death of Medgar Evers, uh, you have a couple steps forward for civil rights and then a few steps back. In light of all this, you have the raise in what's called black power. Uh, there was a riot in Watts. Watts is a area of um, Los Angeles, primarily African American. And the response of many black leaders, particularly younger ones, is that nonviolence isn't going to work. You know, there's just too many major issues, issues with policing. Um, nonviolence can't work. Probably Malcolm X is the best known early prominent leader in this. Uh, he's not a black power leader because black power is a much later term. Uh, he's a bit of a moderate compared to people like Carmichael and Newton who come later. Uh, Malcolm X calls King and Uncle Tom, says that there could be no re chance of reconciliation between the races. Uh, Malcolm X, his, his birth name was Malcolm Little. He changes his name to X because he's like, you know, Little is not the name of my ancestors. That's my slave name. He's like, we don't know what my last name would have been, so he changes it to X. He's part of the Nation of Islam. Uh, he, he runs around a little bit when he's a kid. He's like a... He's a zoot suitor, you know, he does kind of a little bit of a hustler. He goes to jail. While he's in jail, he converts to the Nation of Islam, which is founded by Elijah Muhammad. He is never the leader of the Nation of Islam. He's always the second in command. Uh, he gets into a bit of infighting with Elijah Muhammad over the direction of Nation of Islam. Uh, later in life, you know, after he takes his Hajj to Mecca, He's like, hey, I met white Muslims, and maybe we can deal with white people, just not white Americans. Uh, likewise, he doesn't like some of the things that Elijah Muhammad is doing because he sees them as contradictory or hypocritical. Uh, for instance, Elijah Muhammad cheats on his wife. Malcolm X never cheats on his wife. Uh, in early 1965, right around the time he starts getting popular, uh, Malcolm X is assassinated. He is assassinated more than likely by assassins under the employ of Elijah Muhammad. This is not the end of this kind of black militancy, though. If you go over more, you will see Stokely Carmichael with Dr. King. Uh, Stokely Carmichael started out as one of the heads of SNCC. He starts out with nonviolence. Yet as the civil rights movement goes on, as Freedom Summer goes on, as he sees everybody gets beat, beating up and stuff, he's like, maybe there's more to be had here. You know, maybe we should be getting rid of all white people. Maybe white people can't be in SNCC. Maybe we need to get rid of women. He, has, he says some stuff about women, which is quite sexist, actually. Eventually, he is expelled from SNCC. Um, he moves on to another group, which he doesn't found, called the Black Panther Party. 
Uh, the Black Panthers, like I said, they are not founded by Suckley Carmichael. They're based initially in Oakland, in San Francisco. Uh, they are much more militant. They, they're about gun ownership, the idea of uh, policing the police. This becomes, like I said, a major issue as we go on throughout civil rights. Uh, this idea of black power, so Lugar Michael is the one who comes up with the term black power. Um, just the idea that, you know, African Americans can't really rely on white people to do anything in civil rights. It has to be all internal. Even Dr. King has moved on from racial equality. He says that income inequality is more important. He says that until we solve like income issues, we're never going to have uh, racial equality. He's also against the war in Vietnam, which we're about to talk about, but uh, we're going to stop for just a second because we need to talk about Lyndon Johnson. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, as you might remember, uh, JFK was indeed assassinated. When he's assassinated, his vice president, Lyndon Johnson, becomes president. Johnson is a real character. He is a real character. As you can see here, here he is uh, making a dog howl. Here he is again making a dog howl. Uh, there's a funny story about this picture. Uh, Johnson, as president, he was not allowed to really drive. Uh, when you're president, the Secret Service has, has to do that for you. Uh, he is allowed to drive on his ranch in Texas. Actually, it's his wife's family's ranch. We'll talk about it for a second. And basically, he had this amphibious car, and so he'd like you know be driving reporters around. Be like, oh my god, the brakes are out! No brakes, no brakes! And he'd crash into the water, and they didn't know it was amphibious, and he'd be driving around and be like, ha 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 ha. If you go over one more, there's him and his wife, Lady Bird. Uh, John's, Johnson's an interesting character. Actually, I'm going to talk about Lady Bird for a second. Uh, Lady Bird is his wife. Uh, that's his wife's name is Lady Bird. She has a real first name, but nobody ever knows it or says it because they just call her Lady Bird. Uh, that was a nickname given to her by her maid growing up. She comes from a very, very, very well-to-do, old-money Texas family. She's one of the first women to go to the University of Texas. Uh, Johnson comes from much more modest means, very middle-class existence. His dad is later state representative for Texas. Uh, he goes to, like, um, it's UTEP now, but at the time it was, like, Texas State Normal College, basically a teacher's college. Never a very good student. Uh, his first job, however, is principal uh, in teaching at a school for the children of migrant workers. And this gives Johnson actually a pretty tender heart when it comes to civil rights. Uh, even though Johnson might have looked like a walking, talking stereotype of a Texan, he's weirdly not racist for the time. Uh, there have been some articles that came out lately saying Johnson is racist, you know, he's the N-word and stuff. Yes, he does, but for the time, he's not really racist, and he's actually very gung-ho about civil rights. Likewise, he was a big-time believer. Oh, he came of age during during the New Deal. During uh, you know, he's a he's a FDR Democrat, and he wants to do his own version. Uh, he wants to bring his own version of the New Deal, which he calls the Great Society. You might want to know that it's called the Great Society. He's able to do this using the memory of JFK um, as well as his own legislative ability to get the first piece act uh, the first piece of this act called the first piece of this passed which was the Civil Rights Act uh, Johnson is known for using his sheer size he's six foot four and he is known for using his size getting up into other legislators face he called it the treatment 
Uh, as you can see right there, that's somebody getting the Johnson treatment. Uh, if you go over one more, there's another picture of Johnson giving somebody the treatment. Like I said, even though Johnson looked like a, you know, looked in, looked like a big old Texan and sounded like, you know, Yosemite Sam or Falkhorn Leghorn, he was legitimately a very smart guy who was quite capable and wanted to do a lot of liberal reform. Now, but when he's able to get the Civil Rights Act passed, this really upsets Southern Democrats. So he does this in 1964. Uh, they've already been edgy about the party since FDR, and now they see LBJ as a race traitor. In fact, he responds to this by saying, we might have just lost the South to the Republican Party for a very long time to come. And he's kind of right, because the South does go Republican pretty much after this. In stages, we'll talk about that for a second. Uh, another thing he does once this is over is he um, uses the same sort of mentality to declare what he calls a war on poverty. He says the U.S. is so successful, so wonderful, we can get this passed. We can, um, you know, we, we, we can, we're, we're so wealthy, we're so capable, we can eliminate poverty. So he does things like, you know, starts out um, food stamps, you know, um, Head Start, Medicaid, Medicare, things that, sorry, not Medicare, Medicaid, that's later. Just things to help poor people. Now, there is an election in 1964. 1964, Johnson is up for re-election. Remember, well, well election, well, not even re-election, election. Remember, he's only finishing out the final year or so of Kennedy's first term. Uh, the Republican Party goes super hardcore conservative. The guy they run is named Barry Goldwater from Arizona. Uh, he's so right-wing to the point of being viewed as creepy or crazy. Uh, he says things about, like, we shouldn't be afraid to use nukes on the Russians, which is... Almost like he's advocating for nuclear war. Um, there's a very famous ad. If we were in class, I would ask you to watch. You know what? No. Just pause me right now. YouTube Daisy ad, 1964. And just watch it. Yeah, that ad was only showed once. That's for Johnson. Basically insinuating that, hey, if Barry Goldwater wins... People get nuked. <laughs> uh, 1964 is a very important election for the Republican Party, even though Goldwater loses. Uh, Ronald Reagan gives a very important speech at this time period at the Republican National Convention. He becomes later president. Also kind of sets the tone of the Republican Party going on because Goldwater is able to get Southern voters. Now, he is from Arizona. Still, uh, Johnson wins. He views this as having a mandate. As part of this mandate, he wants to get more stuff passed. Uh, most notably, Medicare, Medicaid, also the Voting Rights Act. The Civil Rights Act prevents discrimination in, like, you know, restaurants and stuff like that. Voting Rights Act says people are allowed to vote. Everybody. Now, Johnson probably would have been remembered for this. He, he wanted all these reforms. Now, there is criticism of these reforms because they cost money. You know, it costs money for Medicare, it costs money for Medicaid, food stamps. You know, people have to pay for it through taxes. But Johnson says it's worthwhile. The problem is Johnson's not remembered for any of this. He's remembered for, if you go over one more slide, Vietnam. Yes, we have let this go on too long enough. We have not talked about Vietnam. Let's do it. Uh, basically, Vietnam is looking like a total quagmire. Johnson doesn't want to, but he feels powerless to not intervene. Uh, there's domino theory. There's containment. Also, there's JFK's legacy. Remember, JFK was starting to do stuff in Vietnam, and Johnson feels he has a responsibility to fill out JFK's legacy. In 1965, he sends in about 184,000 troops. 
1969, there's over half a million. The thing is, this is not a declared war. LBJ is using some executive authority, some you know, legal wrangling to send troops and bomb the living hell out of the jungles. He says this is not an act of war. We're just coming to the defense of another country. And as such, the U.S. could only uh, act within South Vietnamese borders. The thing was that the North Vietnamese are not just in South Vietnam. They're in North Vietnam. But worried across the border, that'd be an act of war. Kind of similar to Korea. Likewise, the North Vietnam are doing stuff in Laos and Cambodia, which we're going to get into in a little bit. So he feels like their hand is tied. Basically, the idea is we're just going to overwhelm them by sheer force. We're going to bomb the living hell out of the jungles. You know, they have Operation Rolling Thunder, which is basically like use napalm on jungles, smoke them out. He also says we want to appeal to the hearts and minds, quote-unquote, of the Vietnamese. Show them that the U.S. is good and we're, we're able to help them out better than the North Vietnamese. Uh, even though he says containment, Keenan even warns Johnson and Congress that this is not where containment is needed. Vietnam's not all that important. Uh, it actually at first looks like the U.S. is doing okay. You know, the late night news would start having all these numbers about how many bazillions of Viet Cong are killed every day. And it looks like maybe the U.S. is winning the war. Uh, public support for the war, you know, public approval is actually pretty high for the war. That, I, that all kind of comes to the head in 1968 with the Tet Offensive. If you go over one more slide, you'll see a map of the Tet Offensive. Remember, the U.S. could only act within North Vietnam, which is at the tippity-top of the map. Now, if you notice, along the western South Vietnamese border, it was known as the Ho Chi Minh Trail. This is how the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese started attacking South Vietnam. Tet is Vietnamese New Year. It's um, kind of a period where nobody's really expecting fighting. It's a holiday. It's a month-long holiday where everybody kind of chills. Uh, the way I've had it explained to me, or the way I'd say to compare it, is, you know that period between Christmas and New Year's Day where you don't really know what day it is and everything kind of blurs together and you just, like, eat a lot of cheese? Or, or, or kind of like how the quarantine is now, where, like, these past couple weeks have kind of blended together and you don't know what's going on? That's what Ted is normally for the Vietnamese. It's just kind of a long holiday. You just kind of chill, do your own thing. It's surprising because... The North Vietnamese attack from everywhere. They start hopping over the border and from Laos and Cambodia. They even conquer Saigon for a short while. This scares the crippity crap out of Americans. The war escalates. It starts getting very expensive. The U.S. drops more bombs on Vietnam than the entirety of World War II, outside of the nuclear bombs. We don't drop any nukes on, Japan, on, ah, on Vietnam. But there are more bombs, just more tonnage dropped on Vietnam, one little country, than the entire rest of World War II. This war cost about $2 billion a month. It got very pricey very quick. Things cost money. Uh, to put this into perspective, this is a horrible way to do cost, but... For every dead Viet Cong soldier, for every Viet Cong soldier the U.S. killed, it costs about $300,000. If you use the cost of the war divided by the number of soldiers killed, it was about $300,000. I know it's a horrible way to do math, but just think of that. That's a lot of money because I guarantee the Viet Cong was not spending $300,000 on their soldiers. Whereas the Great Society programs, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, which are claimed to be too expensive, they cost $18 per person in the U.S., 
so fairly cheap. This cripples Johnson. Go over one more slide. Johnson just feels like he, he, he can't do anything else other than deal with Vietnam. All of his great plans that he had for great society programs are going to happen because of Vietnam. In 1968, he decides not to uh, accept the nomination for president. He says early on, you know, I'm not running for president now, even though he probably would have gotten the nomination. Probably could have won, honestly. Actually, no, he probably wouldn't have won because he was pretty unpopular because of the war. But still, he's like, you know, I'm not going to campaign. I'm just going to focus on the war. Um, this kind of emboldens Robert Kennedy, who's kind of been in the wings, but maybe becoming president one day. Likewise, you have protesters in front of the White House chanting things like, Hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? And then you get to 1968, and this is what we're going to end with, the bad year. 1968 is a very bad year. One of the worst years in U.S. history. I'd put it up with 1949 as bad years. Except this one's pretty much all domestic. In April, in Memphis, uh, Dr. King... (coughs) Dr. King has gone to help negotiate a sanitation worker strike, a garbage men strike. Remember, later on in life, he becomes much more in favor of economic uh, components to it. Uh, King had been kind of been falling out of favor with a lot of the mainstream. Uh, you know, the white mainstream was like, eh, this guy's kind of gone too crazy. A lot of black supporters, like, he's, you know, lost the point. He's not doing black power. Uh, the night before he's assassinated, um, he actually gives a speech, uh, which is very, very foresightful, called the Mountaintop Speech, where basically he's like, you know, like Moses, um, I've been to the mountaintop, I've seen where we're going, I'm probably not going to make it. You know, but keep keep the good fight on whenever I'm gone. It's very... A crazy amount of foresight, because he is indeed killed the next day at the Lorraine Motel, which is a motel in Memphis that was well-known for African-Americans. It was one of the safe hotels for African-Americans to go to. Uh, he is outside smoking a cigarette. He had been meeting with some uh, some younger people about the sanitation worker strike. Uh, in that room were people like uh, Jesse Jackson. However, as he goes out to smoke a cigarette on the balcony, somebody shoots him. Um, is it a conspiracy? We don't really know one way or the other. But what you do know is that he is killed. Uh, something you probably don't know about King's assassination is the day after this, there are massive riots. I want to say four of the top ten biggest riots in U.S. history happened after King's assassination. Uh, all over the place, places like Chicago, Baltimore, D.C. But a lot of U.S. cities have riots, uh, basically in the response of King's death. Now, as this is going on, the, the Democrats are still doing their nomination process. They're still doing primaries. Um, in California, Robert Kennedy has just won the California primary pretty much shilling up the nomination for him. He's at a victory party at a, another, well, at a hotel. He, too, is assassinated. Um, a Syrian national by the name of Sirhan Sirhan shoots him. Uh, he dies the next day. Uh, the, the person with him is not Sirhan Sirhan. I had a student be like, oh, my God, they got the killer. No, that's a waiter who's actually just helping Robert Kennedy after he gets shot. Uh, Kennedy is, Robert Kennedy is killed. This is disillusioning to a lot of people because, hey, there was... Kennedy is able to, like, really cross with race and all the civil rights people. The nomination process is a total quagmire. The Democrats have their convention in 1968 in Chicago. There are tons of protesters all over the place. 
There's protesters on the convention floor. There's protesters outside. Some more radical elements of the civil rights movement don't like um, Hubert Humphrey, the guy who gets a nomination. He was Johnson's vice president. He's seen as two establishment. They wanted somebody like Eugene McCarthy, who had the second highest amount of votes behind Robert Kennedy. However, they go with Hubert Humphrey because he's seen as more centrist. Uh, In the midst of this total quagmire, uh, Richard Nixon is running for president for the Republican Party. Uh, We're we're kind of bookending with Nixon. Nixon claims to be the quote-unquote law and order president. He's like, you know, I'm for law and order. Um, he's like most Americans. He calls them the silent majority. They're good Americans. They, you know, pay their taxes. They're not hateful. They're not bigots. They just want to, like, go to work and do their thing. They see the protesters on TV, and they are just, uh, you know, upset by them. He also claims to have a secret plan to end the war in Vietnam. Nixon is also trying to appeal to Southerners. We're going to talk about that more next class. I should also mention that George Wallace is running for president as well on the segregation ticket. And that's kind of how we're going to end the 60s today. It's a bit of a quagmire, a bit of a mess. You know, you have some steps forward, but you have steps back. You definitely have a lot of backlash with things with civil rights. There are other movements, too, that happen in this time period, which I'm going to get into much more uh, next class whenever we talk about Nixon. But uh, just be aware, there are a lot of movements going on in this time period. The 60s start out with a lot of promise, you know? This idea of the new frontier, the idea that we're going to space. The idea that Kendi is this very young, charismatic, things are going to change type of leader. And then ultimately, things don't really change. You have the war in Vietnam costing so much money. You're having conservatives kind of get more steps on the Republican Party and Richard Nixon pivot more to get Southern voters, as we're going to see when we talk about the election next class period. So just be thinking about that. Um, I'm glad you all came today, and uh, I will see you again soon. So for Dr. Tully, have a good day.